0: Today's episode is brought to you by Andrilla Mukherjee's The Dream Builders, a debut novel that Kevin Wilson calls a marvel of a structure built by a great talent. Written from the perspectives of 10 different characters in a fictional city in contemporary India, The Dream Builders explores class divisions, gender roles, and the stories of survival within a society that is constantly changing and becoming increasingly Americanized, says Tiffany Yannick. Written from almost every angle imaginable, the novel demonstrates how each of us might be a hero in our own narratives while being the potential villain in someone else's, adds Jericho Brown. Mukherjee allows full life for these characters who are often real enough to remind us of ourselves, even as they betray one another, even as they betray themselves. The Dream Builders is out on January 10th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Today's guest, Bulgarian novelist and poet and storyteller Georgi Gospodinov, is a perfect guest to usher in the new year with. For as you'll soon discover, he's a writer obsessed with beginnings and with endings, with questions of time as they relate to both the future and the past, to imagination and memory, and what exactly telling a story does to time or does for us within the passage of time. What are its gifts? What are its dangers? His novels emerge from a deep stream of oral storytelling within Bulgaria, blended with influences also from fantastical writing of writers like Marquez and Borges. And as a poet first, with a background in philology, he's a lover of language and of languages. His care around story is also a care around lines and sentences and individual words. In that spirit, his translator into English, Angela Rodel, joins us for this conversation for moments when Bulgarian is a better vehicle for what Georgi wants to say than English. But as an American who has long ago adopted Bulgaria as her home, Angela also gives us her own perspective on the way Georgi is examining history and time through a Bulgarian lens as well. For the Bonus Audio Archive, Angela Rodel And I have a second long-form conversation about translating Time Shelter, about Georgi's work within the Bulgarian literary tradition, about the textures of Bulgarian as a language, and about how Angela's other pursuits as an actor in Bulgarian cinema and television, as a performing musician on stage and more, how they interplay with her work as a translator. This joins other long-form conversations with translators of past guests in the Bonus Audio Archive, whether Beverly B. Brahek about translating Elen Siksu, Emma Ramadan about translating Abdella Taya, Megan McDowell about translating Alejandra Zambra, or Ellen Elias Bursic about translating Dabravka Ugresic. There are many robust conversations in the archive to explore, as well as contributions by past guests themselves who happen to also be translators, whether Phil Metris reading some of his translations from Russian or Arthur Z from Chinese. The Bonus Audio Archive is only one potential benefit of joining the Between the Covers community in the new year as a listener supporter. Every supporter... Can join our brainstorm of who to invite going forward as guests. Every listener supporter gets a resource-rich email with every episode, with the various things referenced within the interview, and the most noteworthy things I discovered as I prepared for the conversation. To find out more, you can check it all out at patreon.com slash covers. Happy New Year, everyone. Enjoy today's episode about time. about Time Shelter with Georgi Gospodinov. These stories are about the id unleashed.
1: They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
0: I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write
1: a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like
2: really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not
1: interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a a catalyst for dialogue and and, and new forms of, of thinking.
2: All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin.
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. Today's guest, Georgi Gospodinov is a writer who often plays with alter egos. But nevertheless, he shouldn't be confused with the Bulgarian Olympic water polo player of the same name. Today's guest is the poet, playwright, essayist, librettist, short story writer, and novelist, Georgi Gospodinov. Considered one of the foremost European writers today, he's also one of the most translated contemporary Bulgarian writers. His first books were poetry. The Poetry Collection Lapidarium won the National Debut Prize, and his next, The Cherry Tree of One People, won the Best Book of the Year from the Bulgarian Writers Association. He followed this with letters to Gaustin and his collected works, ballads, and maladies. And his poetry has been found in many international anthologies, from Grey Wolf's New European Poets to a fine line, New Poetry from Eastern and Central Europe. It was, however, his first book of prose, natural novel, that gained him international acclaim. Published in 1999 and then in English by Dalkey Archive Press in 2005, it has since been published in 23 languages, and called everything from a small and elegant masterpiece to a machine for stories. He's also published many story collections, including And Other Stories, which was long listed for the Frank O'Connor Award. And contains the story Blind Vaisha, which was adapted into a short animated film of the same name, a film nominated for Best Animated Short at the Academy Awards. Gospodinov has also written screenplays for short feature films, including Omelette, which won the Sundance Jury honorable mention at the Sundance Film Festival. He has also been a columnist for one of Bulgaria's daily newspapers written several plays, including DJ, which has been staged in Bulgaria, France, and Austria, and won the prize for Play of the Year in 2004. And The Apocalypse Comes at 6 p.m., which won the National Award for the Best Dramatic Text of the Year, was chosen by the European Theatre Convention for an international theatre festival in New York City, and was adapted to Bulgarian national radio. He also wrote the Libretto to Space Opera, co-wrote the graphic novel The Eternal Fly, is the author of the essay collection The Invisible Crises, editor of the collection I've Lived in Socialism, 171 Personal Stories, and co-author of the Inventory Book of Socialism, a catalog of everyday Bulgarian objects from 1956 to 1989. Despite this impressive inventory of his own literary accomplishments, here in the Anglophone world, Gospodinov is likely best known for his two most recent novels, The Physics of Sorrow, which won the Bulgarian Novel of the Year and the 2012 City of Sofia Award for Literature, was a finalist for the Strega Prize in Italy, called Extraordinary and Restless in Berlin, won the Central European Angelus Award and Jan Michalski Prize, and which arrived in English in 2015, translated by Angela Rodel for Open Letter Books, and was shortlisted for the Pen Translation Prize and the Best Translated Book Award. Garth Greenwell for The New Yorker said, The real quest in The Physics of Sorrow is to find a way to live with sadness, to allow it to be a source of empathy and salutary hesitation. Chronicling everyday life in Bulgaria means trying to communicate Bulgarian sadness— which is, to the extent that these things can be disentangled, as much linguistic as a metaphysical dilemma. The occasion of our conversation today is Gospodinov's latest book, also translated by Angela Rodel, called Time Shelter. Winner of the Strega Prize and a New Yorker Best Book of the Year, Publishers Weekly calls Time Shelter electric and fantastical, thought-provoking and laced with potent satire. This deserves a spot next to Kafka. Nobel laureate Olga Tukarchik says Georgi Gospodinov is unique in many ways. I've been reading him since the beginning, and I know that no one can combine an intriguing concept, wonderful imagination, and perfect writing technique like he can. And Yuri Herrera says Gospodinov writes like a botanist of the soul. He knows the effects of the pretty mushrooms and the hidden herbs within ourselves, in spite of what they look like from afar. The living beings he studies are our versions of our past, the unretrievable, the recreated, the future versions of our past, and how we imbue them with the fantasies and poisons that we cultivate in silence. Welcome to Between the Covers, Georgi Gospodinov.
2: Hello, nice to be here, and thank you for this introduction. I think we could stop here because we we were spoiled.
0: (laughs) We also have today Angela Rodel herself, one of the most prolific and accomplished translators of Bulgarian literature into English, a much acclaimed and award-winning translator who I will be having a separate conversation with for the bonus audio archive about questions of translation in relation to time shelter, as well as about her background in ethnomusicology and linguistics and her multivaried artistic life in Bulgaria as a performing musician, as an actor in Bulgarian cinema and television. But today, Angela is with us mostly to assist whenever English is not up to the task of describing things that Bulgarian can describe better. Um, As fellow Bulgarian translator Isadora Angel says, of Bulgarian... Translating its rich grammar, comprised of nearly 40 tenses and moods, into the far softer and grammatically unremarkable English, is, for lack of a more ostentatious phrase, hard goddamn work. And Rodel carries Gospodinov's grand, flowing Bulgarian sentences with their maddening rivets in the sometimes antiquated turns into vivid English. Welcome to Between the Covers, Angela Rodel.
1: Thank you so much. Glad to be
0: here. So before we talk about time shelter, I'd like to talk about both time and shelters as themes that run through your work before this book. You've talked about two of your main influences being Borges and your grandmother, and that writing for you began because your grandmother was the only one you dared to tell your dreams to but that when you had a nightmare, she forbid you from telling it, because if you did, it might come true. But because you continued to have the nightmare with no one to tell it to, you came up with the idea when you were seven years old that only if you wrote it down would you be able to escape. And when you wrote it down, you never had the nightmare again. You've said that fear is the reason you write, and it seems to me that the writing then provides a shelter, perhaps a shelter from fear. And you have this great essay called Tripe Soup, Scheherazade and Nightmares, or What Can Literature Do? where you talk about another childhood memory where you were disturbed by a sign at a snack bar that read, Writers are surgeons of the human soul. They must cut out all that is rotten and decayed. And you say, what could a sign like that mean here? I would spell it out every time I ate my soup. One spoonful, surgeons. A second, rotten. A third, decayed. Strange was the taste of that soup. I should list five things that influenced me to do what I do. That sign would be right there after Borges, the Bible, and my grandmother. It saved me forever from the pretense to cut human souls. That was the moment I killed the literary surgeon in me for good. So this story about your grandmother and this story about the sign, to me, they seem related to each other. And I was hoping you could talk to us about stories themselves for you as shelters rather than surgeries.
2: I always say thank you to my grandmother and and uh, and this sign because this was the the way I really believed that stories could save us so the nightmare was a true nightmare that I uh, uh, it repeated night by night and when I wrote down as you said it never I never had it again but also I never forget it so this was the price <laughs> when you <laughs> write <down, you> know, something. <laughs> yes. It just stay in the shelter. I think that everything started from my childhood. And uh, because, you know, uh, my grandparents, I used to live with them for seven years of my life. And my grandparents were great storytellers. I think they had this magical imagination. Uh, they were magic realists without knowing this. They never heard about Marquez or Borges, but the stories they told me, the stories about my neighbor uh, that had uh, wings uh, here uh, and uh, was very super-powered uh, person. Uh, and I, I knew this, my neighbor, and uh, always I always try to, to see where his wings <laughs> and uh, so, this is the stories that I grew up with, and they they really influenced me. I think that this oral stories, this storytelling culture, uh, was very important for my writing. In Bulgaria, we don't have a big apples like you know, or big novels or something like this, but but I think we're quite good in storytelling.
0: Well, one thing you do a lot in your work is you hold up the ordinary and the everyday alongside the larger moves of history. And you do this with language and literature too. For instance, as we've already seen your grandmother and Borges, you put side by side, this weird blue snack bar sign and the Bible side by side. And I wanted to spend a moment with the influence of oral storytelling on you and your style um, your stories move much more like a mind moves than like we expect a novel to move, I think. And, and the Bulgarian translator Isadora Angel in her review of Time Shelter says, you and all Bulgarians are students of the oral tradition of storytelling after five centuries of Ottoman subjugation and literary suffocation. And you yourself have in interviews, have lamented oral storytelling as disappearing, and you've called it anti-monumental. And I would love to hear both about the appeal of oral storytelling and how it might shape the way a book happens, but also what you mean by anti-monumental when you talk about um, mm. stories.
2: You know, you said that my my first book, which shows stories, was called, and other stories. So we have this missing first uh, name, it just, and other stories. I really interested, uh, and other stories, Uh, because, you know, I'm coming from uh, Bulgaria, which was a communist country, and we were fed up with uh, monumental stories, with monumental ideological things. That's why when I started to write, I wanted to tell stories of the people who are on the dark side of the moon, that that are not on the first pages. And my my grandparents, people like them. uh, And another thing, I really believe that, okay, I don't care about the pyramid in Giza or a big monument because (laughs) they will stay, they will remain anywhere but uh i really care about the perishable things the small things uh the things that that will not live forever and i think um, yeah also another reason for my storytelling and interest into small stories everyday things comes from this that uh, i'm i'm really believing on that literature should be on the losing side I'm coming from the country which was called by economists in 2000, 2010 the saddest place in the world. You know this rank of happiness. (laughs) Okay, we we were the the only time we were champions. It was in this (laughs) time when we were champions of sorrow, and uh, so that's why I really want. I, I really think that writing is something like saving the perishable things. And also, it maybe it's a bit romantic or old fashioned, but I believe that uh, with our storytelling, we always gain one more day of our life. It, we know this from Sheikh Rizad, of course. Yes. Uh, you know, she's telling one story and she gained one more day and one more day and so on. Uh another thing, the last thing is that people always said that, okay, the big history with capital H is written by victories, but the people who are uh, on the losing side, they tell the best stories. Huh. They write the stories of the
0: world. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to ask you, and you've sort of already started to answer this, I think around perishable things. I want to ask you about time, uh, both on its own and also in relation to shelters. Even before time shelter, time was at the front of your mind. Your story Blind Vaisha is about someone who has one eye in the past, one eye in the future simultaneously. So they can't experience the present. They're functionally blind as they can't see what is before them. It's a condition that I'm convinced that I have. And I also wonder if all humans have this blind Vaisha syndrome, actually. Um, But in Physics of Sorrow, there is the notion that if you describe the past accurately enough, time will reverse. And one of the alternate titles for Physics of Sorrow was Time Bomb. And the center of Physics of Sorrow is a section called Time Bomb, and in the center of Time Bomb is a section called Time Shelter, which is the name of your new novel, which describes a narrator living much of his life in the basement, which is also a bomb shelter. This is sort of an impossible question, I suspect, but why time as a subject? And are stories a shelter not only from fear, but I think as you've already suggested potentially, a shelter from time.
2: Yeah. Uh, three of my novels are really connected in a way. And they are connected with uh, different fields of the science. Natural Novel was connected with natural history. Uh, the Physics of Sorrow was connected with the quantum physics, so physics of elementary particles. And, uh, of course, Time Shelter was connected uh, with the Uh, medicine with Alzheimer and so on and so on. But why time? You know, because I think that now we are living in this moment of the time where we have the past, the future and the present and at one and the same second, at one and the same minute. Uh, When we described apocalypse, when I was Young, I, I thought, I imagined that the apocalypse was like, uh, what to say, uh, the end of the space, like uh, fireworks, or horses, and so on, uh, fire. But actually, if we read carefully the last chapter of the Bible, we will see that the apocalypse is not the end of the space, but the end of the time. But what does it mean, what we mean when we say the end of the time? This is the, the period where the time is completed, when we have everything in one in one present. And this is not something generous. And uh, anyway, I think we are living now in this, in this period where it's in this schizophrenia, in the with the past, the present, and the future and at one and the same, the same moment. What else? Uh, now during the war because we are in the war the the war is the canceling of the time i mean it's not just we're living in a period where we have the future cancelled we have this situation We are sitting in this situation with the cancelled future but also the war is uh, like a time machine bringing us back to the past And especially this war, yeah, actually it started at the same time, like the second world war with four minutes, with difference of four minutes. Yeah, the second world war started at 4.47 in the morning. This one started at 4.53 in the morning. Uh, This is really the repetition, repetition in a strange way. Mm. Uh, And two wars started with tanks and anyway, and anyway, there are many, many, Uh, similarities in this what else about the time as you mentioned in the physics of sorrow I have chapter called time bomb also this is a novel about time capsule so I made this combination between bomb shelter and time capsule and uh, that's why it became time time shelter it's a a shelter against time but also it's a shelter in time into the time, in the time. We could say many, many things about about the time, but I think that now, exactly now, is the, I believe, as I wrote in the novel, that they are periods, they are separate years, or even months, or even days, when something just make into the time, and the mechanism was broken, and something changed into the time. Uh, I like very much this Virginia Woolf sentence that uh, around the December 1910 something in the human uh, character changed. Hmm. I think that now, in around February 2022, something in the human time changed.
0: We've also suggested the possibility that stories are not just shelters from time, but also from death. Uh, And you mentioned Scheherazade, for instance. Uh, But also in your first novel, that you had the desire to mold a novel of beginnings, a novel that keeps starting, promising something, reaching page 17 and then starting again. And at the end of the novel we're discussing today, you say, the end of a novel is like the end of the world. It's good to put it off. And then in your essay about the tripe soup, you say that one of the things literature can do is is save a life. And you say, how does it do that? To put it simply, it tells stories and thus postpones the end. This is clearest with Scheherazade. One doomed woman tells story after story to gain night after night. Inside the stories she tells, the most frequently tendered coins to buy someone's life are, again, stories. And then my favorite part, I must have known about this instinctively as a child, because I always used to pick up the books narrated in the first person. I knew that their characters could never perish at the end of the book, because it would be impossible for them to utter the sentence... I died. I tell a story. Therefore I am. That's just brilliant. Thank you. (laughs) But do you have, do you want to speak to um, maybe, I mean, it's a large question, but you're also tackling large questions in these books, but about, about death. I mean, in a sense, a bomb shelter is a space against death also. And a time shelter it sounds to me is another word for a story, and that maybe a story is is a is a shelter against death
2: yes, and all my books uh, are written on the in the first person also <laughs> so you're never because, gonna die yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a small trick yeah <laughs> but, uh, yeah uh, in in time shelter there are some pages about the dead and the more dangerous. Uh, monster growing old I think that this is the real monster growing old growing old and uh, uh, and the death of course you know when I was I will tell a funny story from my childhood when I was five six years old I used to live with my grandmother uh, and then I had a terrible uh a uh, what Eric, to say Eric. pain in my hearing Eric, yeah. in my ears mm-hmm. yes and I I, I crying uh, I was crying uh, my grandma I will die I will die and she told me be uh, be quiet you will not die now first I will die then your grandparents will die <laughs> then your mother will die, then your father will die, and then you will die, finally. So it was postponed, or to say, uh, consolation based on (laughs) that, (laughs) postponing the death, Uh, and this is Bulgarian way of consolation. Yes. I (laughs) love that. But but, yeah, uh, I think uh, our stories are just these empty moves. Of the play, which is of course we know the end of this play, of this game we know the end of this game. But we need to, of this empty moves just to postpone the end, to postpone the end, because it's not fair to live just seventies, eighties years. It, it's, it's just not fair, and uh, that's why literature is a kind of time machine. Uh, our stories are kind of time machine. Uh, traveling back to our past or multiplying our lives, and uh, yeah, this is because of the fear of death and the fear of growing, growing cold. And it's a so natural. I really believe. I really love the people who have fears and sorrows. I think they are really normal people. It's so it's a human. It's a kind of to be human being. I, I think that. Putin never had fears
0: or hesitations. Mm. No, it's
2: only so. normal people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, as we move closer to talking about the book, I did want to spend a moment talking about Bulgaria and perhaps orienting people better to Bulgaria. I'd love to hear from both of you about Bulgaria in specific around these questions of time and history. Angela, you co-wrote a piece meant to highlight contemporary Bulgarian writers with the tongue-in-cheek title make Bulgaria great again that goes let's make Bulgaria great again we hope that got your attention why Bulgaria why great why again just think about it what do you know about Bulgaria do you know anything about its history where it is located Do you know any of its great figures, heroes, myths? Do you know anything interesting about Bulgaria? Do you personally know anyone who comes from Bulgaria? It's very hard to get someone's attention when they've never given a moment's thought to you, when you don't exist in their everyday life, when they don't depend on you for anything. It's very hard to get them to look over to peer in, to understand you, to see things the way you do. And I guess I wonder if this sense of, of Bulgaria outside the discourse connects it all for you, Angela, around Georgi's notions of stories sheltered from time. Is Bulgaria also a place that has been overlooked in such a way that its history, its time, its specificities that all those things for others, these histories, these stories, they don't find themselves intersecting with the histories and stories of other people. Um, I, I guess I wanted to just hear a little bit about your perspective as as an American who's now a Bulgarian citizen living in Bulgaria and carrying all these books over into the into English language. Certainly you've thought about Bulgaria in relationship to um, some of these questions that Georgi is, is raising uh, in his books.
1: Absolutely. I can start with a little bit of a personal, you know, story and then try and connect it up to literature writ large. But um, when I was first a college student and please forgive the naivete of the story, because I was literally 18, 19 years old. The reason I got so interested in Bulgaria was at Yale. I heard the Yale Slavic chorus and, and I heard Bulgarian folk music. And I thought, Oh my God, that sound, it's so it sounded so primeval to me. It sounded like nothing I'd ever heard before. And I think at this, this was before the internet kids believe it. Yeah. <laughs> there was a time when there was no internet, you can just get on YouTube. And so, you know, just from listening to the music, I think I made a very romanticized picture of what Bulgaria was. It was this place where there was still this tradition. And I think coming from like, you know, middle-class white suburbia, many of us Americans don't have a deep sense of connectedness or a belonging to a certain community or a certain tradition. Um, and so it was really attractive for me to find and, and get into this kind of music that had a very strong tradition. Like, I mean, I don't even know, I guess I go look it up, like my great-grandparents' names, whereas most of my Bulgarian friends know that their family's been living in a certain village for the last 500 years you know and and every other generation has the same names you know you always take your grandparents names so it's this really interesting very intense sense of connection so I think the first time I went to Bulgaria in 1995 I wouldn't have admitted it but looking back now I think I had a very romanticized version idea that Bulgaria was this time capsule where people still wore native costumes and performed this sort of you know uh, a pagan sounding music and, and and i wasn't disappointed i went to a folk festival and was like wow all these little old ladies running around in, in aprons and scarves and this is great i'm gonna come back for a whole year and so i got a full right came back And it was like 1996. There was an inflationary crisis. There was, you know, nobody in Sofia was wearing native costumes. And I realized, oh, wait, there's a totally, you know, and I hadn't known that, but I guess I hadn't been forced to engage with contemporary Bulgaria until that that time when I was living here in Sofia for a year. But I think it was good for me to to have that introduction because I think history is such an important part of the way Bulgarians See themselves and how they they understand their place in the world, and I think one of the great sort of pains for Bulgaria, literarily, is that it was sort of overlooked in in the '90s when it was like, there were a very intense interest towards Eastern European literature. The novel is the sort of you know vehicle for um for for world literature, and Bulgaria, as Georg was saying, is a storytelling culture. So the strongest Sort of elements of the Bulgarian canon were its stories, short stories, poetry, many fantastic poetry poetry being created, including by Georgi in the 90s. But that wasn't what was going to, you know, there wasn't the great Bulgarian novel yet. <laughs> the actual novel came out in 1990, now, so barely, but to, to really kind of jump on that train. And so I think that there's been a sense that Bulgaria has been a little bit outside of the, the the global literary conversation for some reason. And so now we're trying to send our own time capsules uh, about, you know, why that is and what was going on in Bulgaria. And I think, you know, Georgi is one of the leading voices trying to trying to send that message in a bottle. And I think finally, we're, we're sort of getting some traction with interest in, you know, what has been going on in Bulgarian literature and why it's only now sort of becoming as as visible as, as it is in 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 the global literary scene.
0: Well, Georgi, you've written about how the first two decades of your life were lived under communism, how prior to 1989, 80% of Bulgarians hadn't been to other countries. And speaking of time, you you say in the latest book that you or your unnamed narrator who's very much like you, that you were born at the very tail end of the 60s, but you nevertheless remember that decade clearly from its beginning to its end because those years arrive 10 years later in Bulgaria than everywhere else in the 70s. So we get you get the 60s and the 70s. And you've written about the non-eventfulness of recent history in Bulgaria also. How unlike its neighbors, there was no revolution or mass protests that marked a clear end of the communist era. When the fall of the regime happened, You're simply told on TV that it's over, and you're now free. And because there was no clear break from the past, perhaps also the sense of like governmental corruption extending forward into the post-communist era. And Isadora Angel mentions that Bulgaria became very good at exporting Bulgarians as well, with a million Bulgarians leaving Bulgaria since 1989. And when I think of all of this, and I think about you saying, Stories are anti-monumental. It feels like perhaps Bulgaria is also anti-monumental. And and yet, to go back to Angela's essay, Make Bulgaria Great Again, you've spoken about how a lot of Bulgarian literature is in your mind monumental and conservative or trying to be monumental and conservative, conservative, looking toward a past greatness. For instance, romanticizing the failed April uprising of 1876 against the Ottomans because the notion of a future greatness, it seems closed off. But I also wonder if you're interested in the trivia of daily life, of insisting your grandmother belongs next to Borges, or as you said about your first novel, I want to write a novel that contains everything that doesn't go into novels a natural history of the toilet, personal stories, and ancient philosophy, overheard conversations, flies, and everydayness, lists, beginnings of novels, everything inside a person's head who is trying to narrate his own impossible story. I wonder if creating a story out of so-called non-events and making them into the events that they really are, if that sort of novel better reflects the life of Bulgaria than these other monumental novels. If perhaps to really represent Bulgaria, you have to work against the novel as a monument itself, maybe work against the novel form to reflect what true experience of a Bulgarian life is like.
2: Actually, when I published my first novel, Natural Novel, in 1999, in the last year of the century, it was quite a shock because it was a very strange, crazy novel with three characters. All of them were called Georgi Gospodinov and with a really non-linear structure uh, with domestic flies, and uh, the the story, so the, the fly, the domestic flies, gave the structure of the novel. The novel was facetic like the eyes of the flies and so on and so on. So in the beginning, it was quite a shock. Okay, is that a novel? That's why I decided to give the title Natural Novel to be clear that this must be a natural novel. <laughs> of course, novels are never natural. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the but anyway, uh, and I follow this strategy of uh, storytelling as the structure in my novels also with The Physics of Sorrow, with uh, Time Shelter and all of my novels are full of lists like, the, like in the natural novel, like the first novel, because, you know, uh, making lists is a specific way of storytelling. It's not the usual way of storytelling. People are making lists when they have to leave some place. Uh, when they are in danger, when they, are, uh, they they have anxiety, kind of anxiety, uh, when they hurry up and, and they don't want to forget something important. So that's why they, the list is another way of storytelling, uh, anxious storytelling uh emergency storytelling and uh this is in all of my all of my novels Um, what else yeah you mentioned for me the very important line in all of my books are the things that never happened i really believe this that the things that never happened sometimes uh much more important than the things that happened and uh, in Bulgaria, we are full of unhappened things, non-happened things. Uh, we have a, I could make a huge list with things that never happened to us. Like during the communist time, we never, we were not allowed to travel abroad, to the Western Europe and so on. And this was a really big trauma for us. You know, uh, Monten. Uh, had a sentence. He says, I never wanted to travel to India, but if someone tell me you are forbidden to travel to India, I will be the unhappiest person in the world. <laughs> so that it it was like this. Uh, and I remember how uh, I promised to my grandmother that one day I will uh pick her and uh, to paris to see notre dame uh and when i was for the first time alone in paris in 2000 in 2000 exactly she died the same year two months before that and i remember how how i was staying in front of the notre dame watching the church the cathedral not only for me, for myself, but watching through the through her eyes, and it was—it's another way of watching. It's another way of watching the world.
0: And similarly, you you look through the eyes of your grandfather in in Physics of Sorrow, also.
2: Yeah, when I travel, yeah, when I travel uh, abroad now, uh, I I could imagine the whole line behind me with my grandmother, grandfather, my mother and father, who are traveling with me, invisible. And, uh, and and this is another way of traveling.
0: Well, one of the main things your latest book, Time Shelter, explores is both the consolations and the dangers of memory. And the mysterious boundary, I think, between memory and the imagination. And there are many paradoxes that we discover um, the paradoxes in time shelter remind me of something that you said earlier in this interview and you also say in, in your in an essay about the nightmare and your grandmother where you say about the writing of the first nightmare and your first foray into writing you say did this first recording save me yes and no I never had the nightmare again but I was also never able to forget it. And, and Time Shelter also has these very nuanced, sometimes contradictory ways of looking at memory. And, and here are some of the lines in Time Shelter that I loved. The past differs from the present in one essential way. It never flows in one direction. The past is not just that which happened to you. Sometimes it is that which you just imagined. Happened stories are all alike. Every unhappened story is unhappened in its own way. That one's just brilliant, and and something that seems true and and paradoxical to me. The first thing that goes in memory loss is the very concept of the future, the ability or the capacity to make plans. And you've also said in interviews that it is mysterious how. The more you lose your memory, the more prominent the past becomes in your mind, which seems very mysterious and also paradoxical. In in light of this, talk to us or introduce us to the project that our unnamed narrator and the geriatric psychiatrist, Gaustein, undertake at the beginning of the book. There's an epidemic of Alzheimer's disease, and they create... Clinics of the past, and this gesture, at least at first, it feels like a gesture of kindness and consolation, maybe the way you describe the shelters of stories. What are clinics of the past at the beginning of the book, and how are they supposed to help people who are alive but without the ability to remember their lives?
2: Gaustin started, uh, invented the clinics uh, the past with a very good intention. And the idea was that uh, when you're losing your memory, you're living in another decade. I mean, 1970s or 1980s, when you were 20s, 30s. And the idea was to put in sync this internal time with the time around you. With the uh, with one the time in one room, if in your head you are in 1965, let the room be also in 1965, and this could give the consolation to the patients. Actually, it's it's uh, very close and uh, very logical in the therapy, because in this way, people people really start to tell their stories. People with dementia with Alzheimer's. That there is something that console them and that they, they could start to tell their stories they could feel a kind of happiness let's say or rest uh, of course it's not you couldn't cure them but but you could give them chance to be to be happy for a moment but there are some problems in this because and this question is discussed in the novel could we bring back the past all the past i mean what about the period of like the second world war do we have right to remind to these people with uh alzheimer or dementia the years of the war and by the way it's a real it's a real problem i made some research and i i found that in some clinics just now one of the 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 big problem is that people who were in Auschwitz or in some of the concentration camps when they were young, and now they are 90s, 90 something, uh they come back and they 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 they, they start to remember now clearly the period when they were young and they were in the concentration camps. And it was a problem, they they refused to to have dinner in a whole in a big calls. they 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 are afraid that they are really scary when they see the doctors or the sisters or uh, or they refuse to go into the bathroom because yeah you know all of this is remind them for other times so there are many many things that could be discussed when we try to come back in our in our past past is really, could be dangerous. Of course, the main, after that, after these clinics of the past uh, developed and uh, because of the future canceled situation, many of the people who don't have dementia, they try to come back. They try consciously to lose their memory and because (laughs) they want to live in these clinics for the past. And you know, in the end of the novel, the things goes in a dystopic way, but 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 the clinics of the past are really that they are made with a really good uh, good intention, and actually it it became part of the real medicine now.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you about about the real medicine because I looked into the clinics of the past, and there are real clinics of the past. Like the first one, I think, is a nursing home in in Dresden that recreated communist East Germany for its dementia patients. So I was listening to a a thing on national public radio in in the U S they feature one of the dementia patients, a 93 year old woman, and she loses her memory and she has fading eyesight and life is scary to her. She is full of fears and she says over and over again, where am I supposed to go? Where am I supposed to go? And then the director takes her by the arm, not very far away from where she is, to the government-run store that's built like a government-run store from the former communist East Germany. And it's a chain that no longer exists. And her face lights up every time she recognizes something on the shelves. Uh, A certain type of laundry detergent. The lightweight East German pennies that are made out of aluminum. She has a copy of a former East German television guide to look through. And the furniture, the wallpaper, the appliances are all recreated. And according to researchers, like you suggest in the book, these memory rooms, they aren't cures, but they do improve brain function and they do improve morale and independence. And that same article said that there was a dementia village happening in San Diego or being planned in San Diego to recreate a 1950s Main Street experience. And I wondered if you knew of these places. I mean, they might've happened, I don't know when they happened in relationship to you writing Time Shelter, but were they inspirations a little bit for what you wrote or something you might've discovered?
2: Actually, the idea came uh, 15 or more years, 15 years ago. When I read a short note in a newspaper, it's re- it's the same like in the novel, yeah. Uh, about the the doctor who realized that people who are listening Beatles, let's say, music from their youth, they 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 became more talkative and more uh, quiet and so on. And uh, after that, I imagined what would happen if we make this. Clinics, or if we make these streets and these cities and these countries uh, of the past, and uh, people just not only dementia people, but all people who want to live in 1968, just to move there, <laughs> uh, and yeah, and lately uh, I see I see this. Uh, I I read in New York Public Library when I when I wrote my novel there. Uh, I read about this idea for the San Diego, uh, and uh, but anyway, uh, in my book it's really what to say exaggerated, of course. Uh, usually in these uh, places set in fifties or sixties, there are such places in Denmark, also in uh, in Netherlands. Usually they are like a museums of the fifties or sixties and twice a, a week, they bring their people from the nurses' homes for two hours, for three hours, and then they put them back. And I think this is a bit dangerous because you you, you move between times for a very short time. Right? It's, it's, and that's why my idea or idea of girl skin uh, was that you could live for the whole life in this in this building, in these cities, in these countries, and uh, yeah, you could make, you could put the time back. So, in a way, it's a, in the novel. It's really uh, not to say exaggerated mm-hmm. in a way.
0: Well, I have one last question for you before we start talking about how this idea gets out of control. Um, first, I wanted to ask you something about memory and metaphor, uh, when you describe, as you've already described today, your, your first novel, you mentioned the structure of the fly and the eye of the fly, a very different eye than blind Vaisha's eyes, that that multifaceted eye is a inspiration. And In your second novel, you said that the physics of elementary particles, that those particles buzz with stories. And you also use the structure of a labyrinth. And you said in interviews that the personal past is a river and a labyrinth and that the labyrinth is truly within language itself. It's not simply that the Minotaur is in the labyrinth, but also that the labyrinth is inside the Minotaur. Yes. So I guess I wondered if these structures from these previous novels and these metaphors the fly's eye, and the labyrinth, and elementary particles. Are they useful metaphors for memory as well? Uh, Or is there a different metaphor or different structure that influences time shelter with regards to memory?
2: In a way, the labyrinth and the time are really similar. I mean, this is the structure, but in time shelter, the structure is more like what to say, the uh, mm-hmm. and, and,
1: like the, the memory that's sort of emptying itself out, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. like mm-hmm. the
1: fading memory, we should say, yeah, but yeah, uh, right.
2: the, the abandoned of the, yeah, in a way, it's a it's a it's connected with the with the, yeah, this empty memory, also with the. With the time capsule of, of stories, because if you want to create this space uh, in 1960s, 70s, 80s, as Galstin said, you need f- smells, musics, because smell and music are really like Madeline, Bruce Madeline, but also a lot of stories, a lot of small, personal, everyday stories, stories about afternoons. Uh, I really believe that that. that the past live in afternoons in a small moments that are not uh, uh, significant uh, so this is this was important for the time shelter to collect all these stories to make a time capsule of stories that's why there are many stories here and also uh, the last chapter of the book is uh, it's about this memory going, going empty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, this emptiness, this forget forgetfulness is important for the structure of the novel. And of course, as you said, one of the epigraphs is about the time that in the past time never flew in one direction. So this is also a part of the structure of the, of the novel.
0: Well, as you've mentioned also, at at some point, these clinics of the past, they become popular with healthy people, so much so that ultimately, each country in Europe decides to hold a referendum to decide which decade their country will live in as a nation. So eventually, each country will be living in a different era, one to the next, based on their own memories, perhaps, but also on their imaginations regarding what time period would be most appealing to live in. And you'd mentioned earlier, like, oh, maybe these healthy people would want to live in 1968. But many of the choices of these countries are actually, at least on the surface, a bit surprising. For instance, France and Spain choose to live in the 80s, and the Scandinavian countries mostly choose to live in the 70s. Um, and I wondered how much of this was purely imagined on your part, or and speculated by you, or did you do some sort of nation by nation research? Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> you did research. Yeah, I did.
2: yeah, it was it was the hardest part of writing this novel. Yeah, I I I did some research research, and I asked many people from these countries. All of my translators, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and also I I read uh, many statistics uh, and history of the countries, but also the history of popular culture. Because choosing the some specific period for one or another country is not just a logical or statistical or political uh, move. It's connected with the uh, such, what to say, illogical things like uh, uh, the history of emotions, the sadness, the feeling of happiness, the popular culture, Abba, ab. <laughs> the Swedish group was very important for choosing 70s. It's this this kind of things. And also I made a very I'm very bad with the in mathematics in math but I made a kind of uh, what to say calculations. So I had one country like Spain and I checked When they have votes, how many of them usually vote and which age is more active? And if it's the age between 50s and 60s, they were young in 80s. Mm. And when you have referendum for the happiest decades, everybody everybody was happy when he was uh, in 20s. So that's why uh, I I I make this uh, this kind of uh, smetka
1: mm-hmm. the calculation calculation
2: yeah. and uh and yeah that's why uh, some of the most of the countries actually they voted for the 80s but there are also another reason as you mentioned it's not uh we don't know.
1: Cozy or comfortable.
2: It's not comfortable to live in a revolutionary years and decades. That's why 1968 is a good time just to visit this year, but not to live, <laughs> not there. To live in it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it feels like everyone, regardless of nationality, not just the Bulgarians, are feeling like there's no future or that the future is not a place of possibility or progress or hope that perhaps like Alzheimer's patients, everyone wants to now retreat into our own versions of a golden age. And you don't tell us necessarily why we feel there is no future in time shelter, though I don't think you really need to tell us. Um, Some of it is surely the trajectory of each nation's politics. But in The Physics of Sorrow, you also talk about Colony Collapse Disorder in Bees, How We as Humans Could Only Survive Four Years Without Bees, About White Nose Syndrome in Bats, 90% of bats in New York and San Francisco dying suddenly in one year, About 2,000 dead blackbirds falling from the sky one day in Arkansas, 40,000 dead crabs in England. None of this is mentioned in Time Shelter, though. I think... I think we feel it in our bodies now, as humans, as readers, even if we haven't read The Physics of Sorrow. And even though you wrote Time Shelter before the pandemic, it feels like a pandemic book, with all of us sheltering at home, hiding in our shelters, wondering what the future is going to look like. And there are good versions, I think, of the absence of a future. For instance, when you say in Physics of Sorrow, spring has gone berserk, as if the world has just been created, without a past, without a future, a world in all its innocence, before chronology. But in Time Shelter, this is a world where the EU ministers, now faced with a deficit of future, want to buy time by going back into the past, to get some secondhand future. And in the acknowledgments of Time Shelter, you say the following, For a person who loves the world of yesterday, this book was not easy. To a certain extent, it was a farewell to a dream of the past, or rather to that which some are trying to turn the past into to a certain extent, it was also a farewell to the future. I guess I was hoping you could talk about what it means to be saying farewell to the future, especially as a writer who who yourself likes to avoid endings.
2: Yes, it wasn't easy book for me. As you said, we could feel with our bodies what happens before the pandemic. And I think if you ask me when I had this feeling for the first time, I, I remember exactly the month and the year and when I decided that I, I must hurry up to finish this book, to write this book. It was in the autumn of 2016. Uh, you remember what happened in the US in the autumn of 2016? <laughs> we do. Yeah and I'm in Europe. I, I I must didn't care about okay, it happened in US. They had their problems. I used to live in Vienna in this period. My daughter was uh, 10 years old. And I remember it was again in the early morning in Europe when the final results were ready. like the wars. every, every bad things happened in the early early of the morning around 5 o'clock. So, uh, when we realized that Trump uh, won the election, my daughter was sleeping in the bed and my wife started crying. And then I realized how the politic is a very personal thing. And I realized that something happened in the world, uh, that it will unlock it this this election will trigger all the nationalist populist movement in Europe as well in Bulgaria as well. Uh, this this feeling that what happened in US will be very will affect in a very personal way. My daughter, my life was something that uh, that put me to to hurry up with the finishing of the novel. With, I had this idea that I want to write this novel. But this idea was 15 years old so I get, okay, we'll have time. But now uh, after it was November as far mm-hmm. as I know, November 2016 something changed and I think that the the anxiety uh, was in the in the ear. It was like in the famous poem by Winston Hugh Alden, 1st of September. It was the same feeling. I sit in one of the dive on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid, uncertain and afraid. It was It was the feeling. And, and that's why I started to write this novel. Also, I, I wrote this novel because of the, the kitchen, the nationalism, because of the dangers of the past. Why past is dangerous? The past is not dangerous for the uh, separate person. You could you could go there into the past, into the room of your past. You could stay one or two hours. It's important to keep the door open and then you could come back. But if you want to put in this room the whole nation, then the past became ideological thing. I like very much what Brodsky says in an interview. He says, uh, future is propaganda. The future is propaganda. Now we are living in a times where the past is propaganda. And I don't believe in this empty checks of the past and the future. Uh, because I used to live 20 years in the times of communism. And I remember clearly how they promised us the bright future. Now now they promised me and my daughter the bright past. I don't believe in both of them. So this was the idea of the the, the book. Uh, And nationalism, actually, all this kitschy nationalism, it's like a vampire. The nationalism is like a vampire who Uh, what to say, uh, like
1: drinks, the blood
2: (laughs) Drinks a bloodier from the past. (laughs) He, he, he's alive because of the great past.
0: Well, could you speak to, uh, the referendum with regards to Bulgaria? Uh, what were the decades that were most popular for the Bulgarian referendum of where they wanted to live? What were, how are they different from each other? And then which one, and which one ends up winning?
2: Yeah, we are always, yeah, you a, <laughs> uh, a specific country, very specific country. So our choice was very specific. We didn't choose one time, one decade. We chose two of them. <laughs> one was <lost. laughs> nationalistic choice from the late 19th century. Uh, it's connected with the April uprising and uh, and all this national history, national liberating, and so on. And the second choice was with the late communism in nineteen seventies, eighties, the nostalgia of communism, which is really alive now in our society. You know uh, the things that happened now in Bulgaria and in the last two years when I published the novel. They really prove unfortunately, they prove the uh, this
1: prophetic this, this <laughs> referendum,
2: this yeah. referendum uh, of the past. We had this nationalism, we had this teaching nationalism with all these reenactments uh of the April uprising and also we have this still strong nostalgia to the seventies and eighties. So these both powers are very important to, to the Bulgarian policy now.
0: And Angela, what is your impression of what Bulgaria chooses from your vantage point? Were you surprised by the two most popular eras? would you have imagined it would have been a different era that bulgaria would choose
1: oh no no that, i thought it was brilliant that he thought to put them both together because it really has i think you know the 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 whole national liberation movement is so much a part of everyday discourse it's really amazing I mean it really how much it's alive to people and people feel very like personally engaged in you know the I I guess as an American I I've never been super patriotic but to feel like that kind of a connection to the you know the narrative of our country is really different from and and, but I thought it was really interesting how those things are often fused you know they use the sort of rhetoric from late socialism Mm -hmm. to um enshrine these heroes and it's like. The, the the sort of um, iconography of both of those periods becomes somewhat blended, and I thought it was really brilliant in the book that he thought of a way where they could you know sort of um, co inhabit uh, in Bulgaria in that way.
2: It was maybe the very one of the most difficult parts of the book for translation, yes, because it's connected with Bulgarian really. So Angela met in a great way one of the. One of the very important key scenes in the novel. You could tell about this scene with the flag.
1: Oh, with the um, drones, yeah, with the flag. Drones, that was yeah, drones, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. to have this sort of, you know, you need some old-fashioned kind of archaic language, but you also want a little bit of like the kind of overly highfalutin socialist speak. Like it was a really interesting register to strike to get that 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 sense of the. The, the sort of pomposity of that moment and, and the, also sort of the, the, the ridiculousness of it, you know, without.
2: <laughs> so it's, a, it's yeah. a scene, but maybe Angela will tell better. Mm-hmm. It's a scene with the, the biggest Bulgarian flag. Ever. Ever, <laughs> ever. <laughs> part of the Guinness book and mm-hmm. so on. Uh...
1: And it's supposed to fly over a reenactment of the first shots of the unsuccessful Bulgarian uprising. But of course, like, Many things involving technology because it's drones that are carrying the flag. Over the drones, sort of lose power and start dropping from the. Or somebody gets excited and they they fire a shot and of of their rifle because they're so overcome by the emotion of the moment <laughs> and they shoot down one of the drones and it sort of sinks and turns it into a big fiasco. Of this basically that you know this reenactment is being smothered by this 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 patriotic you know biggest flag in the world. And it's a really brilliant, I think, way of of um of tying those, those sort of uh, problematic discourses together <laughs> in a humorous and very metaphorical way.
0: To stick with this notion of a national memory and national narratives, that's definitely the scariest part of the book. W- when you were in conversation with Maria Dimitrova, you talk about this within Bulgarian fiction, it, uh, the trend toward historical fiction that confirms a a past greatness now lost. And when that intersects with nationalism, then the notion of Bulgarian can become sacred, uh, where you might end up with a story where Roma people are robbing and pillaging Bulgarian villages until a Bulgarian hero rouses the nation against the other. And then you've also written about the Museum of Totalitarian Art in Sofia, um, and you talk about this with her and how you were criticizing it for having an ahistorical presentation and curation of what was inside. When everyone in a given country decides on a decade and starts dressing from that time, there's all of a sudden this pressure to conform to how you're supposed to appear and behave, and it's it's really Terrifying to me. Um, This idea of returning to an imagined past is definitely what motivated the Nazis. It's what has motivated the Republican Party under Trump in the United States with Make America Great Again. Uh, It's a sort of nostalgia that that does create fear, I think. So I looked up thoughts on nostalgia from a Russian-American cultural theorist, uh, Svetlana Boym has this piece called The Future of Nostalgia. and She argues that nostalgia is not actually anti-modern, but coexists with modernity. And also that while nostalgia appears to be a longing for a place, it is actually a yearning for a different time, the time of childhood or the slower rhythms of dreams. It's a rebellion against the modern idea of time and wants to obliterate history, turning it into a private or collective mythology. In her words, the nostalgic wants to revisit time as space. The past might not even be the past, but a slower time or outside of time. And she even suggests nostalgia isn't always retrospective, but sometimes sideways when when someone feels stifled by conventional time and space. But she also makes a distinction between two types of nostalgia, restorative nostalgia and reflective nostalgia. And for her, restorative nostalgia is at the core of national and religious revivals. And reflective nostalgia doesn't follow a single narrative or plot but explores ways of inhabiting many places at once, many time zones at the same time. That restorative nostalgia loves symbols, emblems of homeland in attempt to conquer time, but reflective nostalgia loves details, shattered fragments, uh, and it demoralizes space. Restorative nostalgia has no humor Reflective nostalgia is ironic and often humorous. And I think of the lines in Time Shelter by our unnamed narrator. There were two Bulgarias and neither one were mine. And I think of that when I think of Svetlana's idea of reflective nostalgia, her love of details being in two times at once um, or outside of both times. Because your books are these collections of details they're often funny. There's a clear sense of care and tenderness. But I guess I wondered if you felt, do you agree with the idea that there are these two types of nostalgia and perhaps there is a healthy nostalgia and there's an a even evil nostalgia? Um, or is nostalgia just bad all around?
2: I absolutely agree with this reflective nostalgia and the, the other kind of nostalgia. And actually, I think that maybe we need to new word for this, because nostalgia is connected with the place. Etymology of nostalgia. Nostos is a kind of place. Called. So maybe we have something like tempostalgia. I don't know. Nostalgia. I, like,
0: I like tempostalgia. <laughs> maybe it'll start today. as yeah. yeah,
2: because uh, also it's connected now, we must say, this changing of the longing for the time, then into the space more to the time is connected with the new media of course with the social media uh, also connected with the COVID pandemic uh, because the space we had we had a small space and a lot of time so we could travel only into the into in the time not in not between spaces the same with the internet with the social network um it doesn't matter where you are. The space is not so important now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the time became much more important. And yeah, I'm really, yeah, I suggested this new new world. And about this reflective nostalgia, yes, populism, populist politics, they, they're using uh, this simple kind of nostalgia uh, and that's why reenactment of the past is a part of this simple, simple attitude to, to the past. Simple nostalgia. Uh, but when you start to to reflect to to narrate your past, then you realize how that that it could be different. It could be more complicated and uh, full of other ideas, let's say. This is the question of what kind of memory we want to develop. Mm-hmm. And storytelling and literature suggest this reflective nostalgia, of course. The visual, simple explanations and reenactments are on the other side of the nostalgia, on the dangerous, on the dark side. So that's why I really believe that literature is literature is one of the antidotes could i say yeah. antidotes yeah. to the uh all these uh, fake interpretations of the past and, and the present that we have now because literature is a very slow media we need now more from the <laughs> for we need the slow medias <laughs> uh, many years we were obsessed with the fast medias with everything to to come, news and everything, just to come faster. Now we need to slow medias.
0: Well, very frequently in your nonfiction and in your interviews, you point out how ways that Bulgaria is being characterized are often something that's actually affecting all of us around the world. Uh, Bulgaria reaching to the past because they have no sense of a future is one example that we are all feeling. In your essay, Invisible Crises, you talk about living in a state of perpetual crisis, and you name many of the crises that you lived through and have lived through in Bulgaria, large and small. But the essay ultimately becomes about a global crisis and a metaphysical crisis, that is, humanity's crisis, not Bulgaria's crisis. And I think you do something similar with sadness. And you've mentioned the Bulgaria's uh, World Cup victory in sadness. Um, Garth Greenwell's piece about you for the New Yorker, he, he references the article from The Economist in 2010 on the geography of happiness, which is the one that declares Bulgaria the saddest place in the world. And Isadora Angel says, Bulgarian is a language possessing an inherent porous melancholy, but you've talked about how so many languages have an untranslatable word that approximates sadness, and you've even said that you go back and forth about whether the right word in English for Bulgarian sadness is sadness or sorrow, um, whether it should be the physics of sadness or the physics of sorrow because this match isn't a match, there's not a perfect uh, connection between the languages. Um, But you've said in interviews, perhaps in the spirit of your Borges epigraph that goes, the world is no longer magical, you have been abandoned. You've said that the saddest place is the world. Melancholy has gone global. And I guess I'd love to hear from both of you about whether there is a is there a unique bulgarian sadness or sorrow that's different i know we have this global sadness now that i think we all are there are ways in which we're all sad in a similar way now but yeah. what what is this bulgarian sadness real or something that people outside of bulgaria are are describing about bulgaria mm. i'd love to hear both of your thoughts on on bulgarian sadness
2: Yeah, the sadness is global now. We could realize this. We could see this. We could feel this. But there is a Bulgarian this is the Bulgarian word. Uh, I really love this word because if you're trying to say it slowly you could try now. (laughs) Try. Yes, you could see how your Adam Apple is moving. It's there is something like you want to swallow something that you don't want to say what to say. There is something very personal mm. that you want to swallow. T-ga, t-ga. It's with this g, g. Uh, and uh, this is a so the sorrow has phonetic side, and this is the phonetic side of Bulgarian, taga sorrow, but also. Uh, Bulgarian sorrow is connected with the things that never happened. I think that Bulgarian sorrow is a sorrow on the second degree. What I mean, <laughs> when you have Khuzun, this is the Turkish sorrow, or Soldade, uh, the Portuguese sorrow, these are the sorrows of the big empires. They owned the half of the world and they loved this half of the world. So this is a sorrow of the big empires that lost what they owned. In Bulgaria now, we, we never owned half of the world, even more, we never the <laughs> half of the world. So, so this is, but we have this sorrow to the world that we never had, mm-hmm. that we never traveled mm-hmm. to the world. And this is really a second degree of sorrow. My father and mother, they never been in Paris, let's say, or London. or—and no. But they have their nostalgia to these places. Mm. They have their sorrow to these places. They imagined these places. They know about them. They invented them. And that's why their sorrow is really, really big, really strong sorrow. This is the Bulgarian sorrow. This is the difference of Bulgarian sorrow.
1: You know, I think it's important when Georg and I were talking a lot about the title of of physics of the Gata, uh, of what it should be, and I think that guttural moment of something almost sounding like a sob, we don't quite capture it in English with sorrow, but at least it's a little bit more like from the back of your throat, whereas I feel like melancholy It has an element of melancholy. I remember Garth and I have discussed this on a number of occasions. He he was pushing for physics and melancholy, but to me, that's a borrowing in English. It's French. It's too associated with Freud. You think of sort of like upper middle class ladies sort of being hysterical, and that isn't at all the Bulgarian. It's something very native. I felt like we needed a good, you know, Germanic word in English that would give that that sense of gravitas to the way that it isn't something that only the sort of upper class elites suffer from, that it's like a very human, very kind of primal sense. And I felt like that was, and also the rhythm of the title, Physics of Sorrow, Physica Notagata." we wanted this sort of, almost like a heart beating, you know, that was part of a lot of the conversation that went into um, but yeah, there are elements that no English word is, is going to yeah. capture at all. It, it,
2: it was a big problem to translate this title in different languages. In German, it was Schwermut. Schwermut. schwer mm-hmm. is something very heavy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the, the, maybe the most difficult title we chose was in Greek. And it was strange because the physics is a Greek word. And uh, mm-hmm. and melancholy. Yes, has come from Greek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was—it's not easy. It was not easy to translate in Greek because physics means something else there. Mm-hmm. We have <laughs> so we use the old version, Aristotelic version on the physics of stuff. Okay. Oh, so... That's
0: fascinating. <laughs> I love that. Well, I wanna I wanna return to something you mentioned earlier about literature being on on the losing side, um, in your tripe soup essay you say. I find this to be an essential feature of European literature. This is literature that avoids easy explanations of the world, literature that is not afraid to speak of life's weak points of sin, sorrow, guilt, perishableness. Literature gives us a few important rights, the right to hesitate, the right to be weak, the right to fail, The right to sympathize with others, the right to be somebody else, somewhere else, at least while reading, the right to feel sorrow, one of the most human conditions, the right to have a personal story with all its fears and nightmares. And we see this in Physics of Sorrow, with you taking the side of the minotaur, who in your story is an unfairly maligned, abandoned child. But another creature that goes through a lot of your work is the fly. Um, and we've talked about the fly a little bit, but I wonder about the fly uniting the sense of being on the on the losing side, being unloved, being perishable itself, but also a creature associated with death. As we've mentioned, your first novel is structured based on the fly's eye you've you've talked about how When your grandma would read the Bible, you'd watch the flies on the ceiling. You've also said that your grandmother used to say that flies consciousness is people's consciousness, that we're equally unimportant flies and people, which doesn't seem fair to flies, honestly. Um, I suspect they're more important than we are. Um, You have a graphic novel called The Eternal Fly, told from the point of view of the fly, there are flies in your first poetry collection. Your opera libretto, space opera, has a fly in it, and it's an opera that's a tribute to Laika, the first dog in space, a story that haunted you of this dog being sent into space when you were a child. But flies were the first being sent into space, as you say, in 1947 because of their perishability and because they're transient. Um. There was even a special issue of the newspaper you were involved in dedicated to the fly, which apparently is the opposite of the bee because the bee is organized, a builder, uh, focused on the collective, so becomes this natural symbol of communism. So is the fly the secret union of your concerns about time and perishability, death, the unloved and the forgotten? I'd love to hear you talk about flies and literature in relationship to literature and losers.
2: also uh, flies are the part of this very important for me non-anthropological point of view, uh, because actually flies are many years before us, they inhabited this this world. Flies appeared, I think some million years before the human being. So we are just guests of their home. (laughs) They are are hosts, they are the real hosts. And this this another point of view, uh, I think it's very helpful and healthy for us because our anthropocentrism is really dangerous, especially now. And that's why I, I like to talk about flies because nobody likes flies, nobody loves flies. I I I I really obsessed with <laughs> with <laughs> this with this topic, and because flies are always with us, they are always in our afternoons. As I said, I really love afternoons, and afternoons are made of flies, and uh, and uh, they are like a hidden camera in our in our uh, rooms and uh, yeah i i really uh actually they are flying in all of my books uh, and also in my poetry and my space opera as you said uh, i believe in twice I, I i want to say their stories in a way uh, because i i'm sure that Flies and uh, other animals they also have their stories and in the physics of sorrow I'm suggesting what about if you narrate all the classic literature all the canon through the eyes of different species let's say the old man and the sea by Hemingway to be narrated from the point of view of the fish yeah because her destiny is much more dramatic
0: Well, let's stay with this question of inhabiting different points of view. Another thing that Maria says is that your novels don't have a precedence in Bulgarian letters and that what unites them for her is what she calls your atomized style, which we could connect to the eye of the fly, but also to the pre-Socratic philosophers in natural novel and their theories of atomization but also to quantum physics and the physics of sorrow. But I wanted to talk about atomization in regards to selfhood and identity. Your books have narrators that are sort of versions of you, but they also have this invented character, Gaustein, that goes all the way back to your poetry. There are often epigraphs in your novels written by Gaustein among other epigraphs by Pessoa or Borges. And they fooled people, smart people, into thinking that Gaustine is actually a real historical figure. Gaustin, unlike the unnamed narrator that's suspiciously like you, travels across books, and he seems to be able to defy the laws of normal physics, of, of time and space. He's a mercurial person, who's setting up these clinics of the past in the new book. And you've called him an alter ego. So, in a sense, we have an atomized self here. We have Gaustin. We have the narrator who is, quote-unquote, you. And we have you, the author. And I liked how Isadora Angel described it. Gospodinov blends the meta with the auto and the non in his fiction, And while his books are filled with memorable, supporting characters, they often remain unnamed. Their story is peripheral. Ultimately, Gospodinov himself is the Alpha and Omega. So I guess I was hoping you could talk about self and self-representation in relationship to your narrator and Gostin.
2: Uh, very, very good question, but sometimes questions are more, more important than the answers. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't That's care. a good answer. <laughs> 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 Especially this kind of questions yes. <laughs> about self-representation and, and so on. I, I think I'm the supporter character. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Gaustin is much more what to say, monolith in a way even uh, he's traveling through the space and time but he has sh- he's shaped much more than me, than the narrator uh, and uh, he was invented as an invisible friend, but actually the narrator is much more the invisible <laughs> in this situation and yeah uh, yeah, uh you know this famous uh sentence by Hubert. Madame Bovary, that's me. That was the pretensions of the classical literature. I must say in opposite way, Georgi Guspodinov, that's not me. It's <laughs> <That's> not <laughs> me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know who am I, of course, like uh, all modern people. That's why I need it of Gaustian. I needed of someone that I wanted to be uh, beyond the limitation of my body and my times. Uh, This is our dream, the dream of the modern people, to be everywhere. (laughs) Because uh, this is our anxiety that we are not everywhere. Mm. That uh, I'm missing in this. There is this part of the book. I'm in this. Second in this minute, I'm missing from New York, from Rim, from Napoli, from uh, Reykjavik, from the Moon. Uh, So the whole world is full of my my absence. Uh, That's why Ghostin was invented. Ghostin is my dream. Yeah, my dream to to be to have unlimited bodies and and lives and time. But in the last book, he really changed Ghostin because he appeared in all of my books. But in the last books, he became a bit dangerous. Yeah, he did. Now he he pretended he invented everything, that he invented me, and uh, that uh, uh, he is like a person who is obsessed with some um, obsession with some money. He's monomaniac of the time, of the past. And that's why he he became, I don't know, No, I couldn't say dictator, but like a very dangerous figure. Not sure if I will meet him again.
0: Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I <do> kill him. <laughs> I <must> kill him. <laughs> you might kill him. Well, yeah. one of your many alternate titles that you had for Physics of Sorrow Speaking of point of view and identity was the title "We am." and it is another one you said that you've gone back and forth about whether it should be in English We am or I are. But either way, it seems to point to something about identity, an identity that's collective, but different than a a national collectivity. yeah two, two quotes from that book I think of are one about newborns where you say, they still know the secret of paradise, but they have no words for it. When they are given language, the secret has already been forgotten. And then another line that goes, there's only one true identity to be a living creature among living creatures, to be ephemeral and to value the other because he is ephemeral as well does that provoke any thoughts for you about we am and i are in relationship to what it means to be a self among other selves
2: yeah i, I couldn't be more clever than I, <laughs> than my book that i wrote <laughs> it the sentences. but yes uh yeah this is part of the this this collective identity, but uh, environmental identity, not ne- not not national identity, of course, and it's connected with the empathy, of course, with the empathy. Uh, when I say I are or we am uh, this and this and this, you should say after that that I died like this and this and this that. I, wo- I were, or we, we was, or how it was translated in the mm-hmm. end.
1: I can't remember, I have to look As at it. Me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I were, maybe it was I were. I were. Mm-hmm.
2: I, were. Mm-hmm. I died like a, a ginkgo biloba, mm-hmm. like fish, mm-hmm. uh, like snail, and so on, and so on. So uh, this is a question also of mortality, and the uh, knowing of mortality even if you are not yourself even if you are part of the the whole world the whole world is mortal world and that's why it's precious i mean it's yeah it's valuable because it's mortal that's why we started with the giza pyramids and that i don't care about them uh we should care about mortal, mortal words. And yeah, uh, but this is environmental identification. This is important.
0: Well, it's interesting also when you were in conversation with Maria and you were talking about how you thought a lot about mortality when you were a child, um, that she suggested perhaps the Bulgarian connection here is so many Bulgarians grew up with their grandparents in the house. Yeah. And so they saw older people and aging people and, and people dying while they were young. And you told this great story about your grandmother always taking you to the wardrobe once a month and saying, when I die, you will bury me in this and in this and in this. And that, in between those monthly visits to the wardrobe, it felt like death was living in the wardrobe within arm's reach, that, which also sort of makes, there's a certain generosity in the way you tell it because it makes your grandmother into this mythological figure, I think, also. She becomes this really amazing source of storytelling. Even the wardrobe becomes this magical, terrifyingly magical place. Um, but I wonder if somehow this environmental identity it seems like it's probably also connected to connecting ourselves to generations, as well, to people of other generations who are still alive, who are much older than we are, and caring for them.
2: Yeah, they had this this let's say even pre-modern type of, uh, of uh, imagination, like our grandparents. They had this. They had this kind of. Uh, environmental imagination when you are a child you also have this, this kind of environmental imagination you know that everything is alive I knew this was true with, I could talk with all these uh, flowers with the bottles uh, with the birds uh, and the first book that I've read was uh, Anderson The Fables by Anderson and you could realize because of this book and because of the stories of your grandmother, that everything is alive. My grandmother had this ability, what to say. Uh, She, she, uh, she talked with the bees and as a child, it was so strange for me how she talked to the bees. She says to the queen bee, because we had bees in our village. Uh, In our yard, and when was this period? uh, The bee, the queen bee, uh, flying away. She had to turn her pick, this queen bee, back to the to the other bees, and she she started to crying. She started to the vicar.
1: it's a keening, some kind of like crying, and you know, uh, asking, uh, yeah, yeah, the vicar yeah it's like calling it morning. back, calling it back, yeah, yeah, to beg this queen, to beg to this. Back. She started to yeah, beg yeah. this
2: queen back with the words "mat, mat, 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 mat," and many years later, when I was student, I realized that this word "mat" is actually Indo-European word for mother. Mm. So she trying to talk in Indo-European language. <laughs> <laughs> to the bees. She was the last person talking in, East, in Indo-European language with the bees, to the bees. And it was, it was such a normal way. It wasn't miracle. It was important that for her, for everyone, it was such a normal way to talk with the animals.
0: Well, in the spirit of this sort of knowledge that exists before language and and a notion of identity that connects us to others. I was hoping we could end with a reading of one paragraph in both Bulgarian and in English.
2: Well, I think the Bulgarian should go first. Yeah. Later. Okay. We will start with Bulgarian one. Когато говорят за миналото, хората от племето Аймара сочат с ръка пред себе си. Вървиш напред с лице към миналото и се обръщаш назад към бъдещето. Каква ли би била притчата за жената на Лот тогава? Вървим напред и влизаме в безкрайните ерисейски поля на миналото. Вървя напред и се превръщам в минало.
1: They believed this very day that the future is behind you. It comes up from behind your back, surprising and unforeseeable, while the past is always before your eyes, that which has already happened. When they talk about the past, the people of the Aymara tribe point in front of them. You walk forward facing the past and you turn back towards the future. What would the parable of Lot's wife sound like in this case? We walk forward and enter the endless Elysian Fields. I walk forward and become past.
0: Thank you both for uh, spending this time with me today on Between the Covers. Thank,
2: Thank you. you. Thank you.
0: We've been talking today to Georgi Gospodinov and Angela Rodel about Time Shelter. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs> Today's program was recorded at the volunteer powered, non commercial, listener sponsored, full strength makeshift home office of me, David Neyman. You can find more of Georgi Gospodinov's work at georgigospodinov.com. For the bonus audio archive, I talked with Angela Rodel, Georgi's translator, about translation, about her life as an actor, as a performing musician in Bulgaria about how her love of Bulgarian music is related to her translation work and much more. The Bonus Audio Archive is just one potential reward and one possible reason to join the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests. Every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation. And you can choose from a wide variety of other Potential enticements, whether becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to any number of gifts and collectibles from past guests, out-of-print chapbooks by Ursula K. Le Guin, writing consultations from past guests, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com/support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team: Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the Book Division; Alice Evelyn Yang in the Art Department; Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity; and Lance Cleveland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Emre Ladbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Emre Lodbrog A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash barbarabrowning